Hi, welcome to the Self-Helpful Podcast. I'm Kevin Miller. I'm like you. At the end of the day, I want fulfillment and peace and joy, and I want my problems solved. So I hunt for the latest and greatest authors and experts in self-help and ask them the candid and in-depth questions I'm curious about for my own growth. And I bring these conversation series to you so we can learn and grow together. In this episode, it's almost a little detour from pure self-help. I started off with the story of a guy who wanted to be an entrepreneur yet had no idea how to be and was, as he says, you'll hear at the top of the show, socially uncalibrated, which in his case meant he was the guy always trying to sell you something that everyone avoided. Bad news for an entrepreneur. His first two attempts at being an entrepreneur completely failed. I mean, completely, meaning he created a business that did not make one sale. It's a great story, though, for anyone who feels out of their depth or who is meeting literally zero success in some endeavors. So my guest is Elliot Biznow. Elliot's somewhat ridiculous story takes him from literally zero to now being co-founder of the Summit Group, which began and still includes the Summit Series events that are as much festival as self-help conferences. They've held 250 of the events loaded with celebrities, thought leaders, billionaires, and politicians, and lots of people like you and me as well. And the event has hosted luminaries like Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, Jessica Alba, Shonda Rhimes, Brene Brown, and Al Gore, and more, and some of the most beautiful places on earth like Playa del Carmen, Mexico, and Squaw Valley, California, Washington, D.C., so many more. And in this talk, though, we really got into discussing the nuances of what makes the event so successful as opposed to all the events you're used to attending, you know, how they focus on uh, the speakers. And in this with Elliot and Summit, they focus on who's attending. Where's the event take place? What's the experience going to be like? Not just who's speaking. So if you have any interest in holding events, whether paid for as a business uh, or even just socially, you're going to want to hear this. It's great counsel on how to do it well and what people want. And we even talk about what to look for in events as an attendee. So if you're looking for self-help and you're going, what should you be looking for? What's going to fit you? It's just so intriguing. And a little more on Elliot. He's a startup investor as well. He's has almost 50 early stage investments in companies like Uber and Coinbase and Warby Parker and Allbirds. And at the start of the show, in a moment, you're going to hear he's talking to me from Powder Mountain Ski Resort in Utah, America's largest ski resort, which he's co-owner of. Elliot and his three business partners recently published the book, Make No Small Plans, which entails the, again, fairly ridiculous story of how four very average guys created such a successful company after doing so many things wrong. And I think you'll find great comfort and come away feeling that you can be as clueless and also successful as they've been. The story really inspired me to think bigger than I have as of late. You can also get the book, Make No Small Plans, anywhere and find Elliot and his pals at summit.co. Hey, if you got value from this show, this self-helpful podcast, leave us a review. Let others know what they can expect. Let us, let us know what you thought. And best of all, talk about it with someone else. It'll elevate both of your day. You can always connect with me at my website or social media at kevinmiller.co. Well, next up, Elliot Biznow and I talk about his journey from clueless wannabe entrepreneur to great business success and also just about events. And uh, again, even if it's not business related, even if it's socially, how to do events that matter to people.
I'm a foodie and I enjoy learning about the process that brings great foods and beverages from idea to the table. And then I like tasting them and learning the nuances of what creates the most significant tastes from coffee to cheese to distilled beverages. I did a tequila tasting in Mexico and recently bourbon, Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon really impressed me from the story to the taste. I grew up in Kentucky where horse racing and bourbon are famous and I got introduced to Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon. It's produced by Heaven Hill Distillery, which has been and still remains family owned since 1935. And I'm impressed with the bourbon's ultra rich, smooth taste. And right on the bottle, it states that this bourbon is seven years old, which is actually three times longer than what's required to be certified as bottled in bond. I feel with beverages, the longer the prep, the better the taste. Being a bottled in bond product means it must pass a list of seven requirements that set the standard for this quality bourbon. So look for it at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely and drink wisely. And first, I want to ask where you're sitting because it just looks like a cool house. I know you own property in Utah. Where are you right now? Well, I'm at uh, Powder Mountain that's, Ski Resort. That's what I wondered. Okay. Yeah. And this is our 1,500 square foot cabin uh, at the top at the top of the mountain, which is ski in, ski out. Yeah. And to the north of us is Idaho. And we're also on the border of uh, Wyoming and Nevada. But yeah. we're here in northern Utah. I know, I know the area a little bit and I appreciate you calling it a cabin. I'm here in the mountains of Colorado and I know a lot of people who have quote cabins that are, uh, monstrosities like that. That's, that's awesome, man. This story is so good. I want to bring people to where you are. What elevation are you sitting at? About 8,500 feet. That's exactly where I am. Exactly. So good. Uh, we're talking on even levels here then, man, your story, Elliot, as I've been reading through, it's always amazing when I get word of somebody or get wind of something. And with all the things out there, I'm amazed. And I'll find out, man, I, I just missed this one. How did I miss this? How did I miss this story? And I'm reading about it and reading about a lot of people that I know, but I missed you guys. So in reading it, of course, that's why you're on the show. I was just intrigued with the story of how it all came back, uh, came to be, uh, come to fruition. But honestly, at the beginning, your story intrigues the heck out of me. Because what you did, as you know, would scare a lot of people to death. And yet, what a great outcome from it. And I'm sure you hear that a lot. Thanks. Yeah, I think that our story, Kevin, is very relatable. And, you know, for people who just met each other, um, I personally didn't have a ton of friends. Uh, two of the four of us dropped out of college, including me. Mm -hmm. And none of us were you know, particularly brilliant. You know, Jeremy was in a band. Uh, Brett uh, had been selling knives for Cutco. Yeah. I had gotten rejected from all seven colleges that I applied to. Um, you know, Jeff, you know, was an entrepreneur and had a, had a couple startups, but none of them had worked. And, you know, he went to American University. Uh, Brett went to George Washington. I went to Wisconsin. I mean, but the, our, look, our book starts with... Um, it's safe to say that if you, you know, you are building a sports team, you know, the four of us would not have been your first round draft picks. And so I think mm -hmm. just from that opening, it's very, very relatable story. Like Inc how did these, yeah. Incredibly. And that's what drew me in. And even your story specifically, which they start off with yours, you know, first in the book, um, it is, and I'm incredibly grateful for, for the candor, even of your, uh, it took some humility 
for you to let them write out just what you dealt with personally, that you're that guy who came out, didn't really know what you're doing. You've been playing tennis and not really paying attention to social aspects of life and whatnot. And you come out, you think you want to start a business and you come out with some absolute failures one, but in even depicting your personality, that you're that guy, they called you casino floor, Elliot, you know, you're that guy who came to the event trying to sell people something. And you're the guy that I'm avoiding. I mean, absolutely. I'm an, I'm an introvert <laughs> and I'm going, Oh my gosh, please just, just don't. And that you guys divulged that is significant that I, I, honestly, yeah, the level of humility for you to go, okay, yeah, you guys could write that is, is kind of intriguing to me. Yeah. The, uh, the casino floor comment, you know, when I finally realized in college, I wanted to be an entrepreneur I was not socially calibrated. So I did have that work ethic, but it, it was the classic work hard, not smart. Uh-huh. And I was, you know, waking up early and pounding the phones. But the joke amongst, you know, people who met me or my few friends was, you know, I was like a casino floor manager. You know, I was like, you know, oh, you know, come over here, come over here. You need this. I got this. You want to drink? And um, I was just like going, you know, 100%, but not necessarily in the right direction. Like I had the right intentions. And I think that's the beauty of when I met the other summit co-founders, you know, we all had something to teach and we all had a lot to learn. And I think I brought a work ethic. I had an entrepreneurial spirit, but I really had no idea how to actually be an entrepreneur. Do you look at that now and realize as you're in communion with so many people I've not heard that term. Maybe you wrote it. Maybe it's one that I just missed also socially calibrated, beautiful term. Cause how many times do we see somebody and, and then wonder for ourselves, are we socially calibrated? How are we coming off to people? My gosh, that's gigantic. And I, to me, that was a, as big a value as anything in the book is you just divulging that, that you didn't have some silver spoon pedigree to come out and run a business. You weren't just Mr. Charismatic, which we all expect that the successful entrepreneur is at some point, right? They're just extroverts that can just smooth talk people and charm their way in. And you're saying, no, I was absolutely not that. And the first few endeavors that you started, well, there, you started a t-shirt business in school that didn't sell any t-shirts. You started a creative consulting firm that never got a single client. You started selling ads for your dad and were terrible at the beginning. I mean, that's not the story that we generally hear. We may hear of a you know, an effort that didn't go well, but to say, no, I was not really socially connecting to people and my efforts really fell flat. You would generally hear somebody say, well, you're probably just not cut out for that. And yet the fact that that didn't really enter the conversation with you is in, again, very intriguing. Yeah. I had so little money in college that in order to save money, I actually bought a beard clippers and I just shaved my head to avoid having to pay for haircuts. And then when I had to go to client meetings, because I was selling advertising for this newsletter I'd started with my dad, I put on a suit and tie, like uh, when it was totally unnecessary, you know, I'd be going to meet with a marketing director and, you know, they're wearing, you know, jeans and a button down or khakis and a button down. I'm literally wearing a suit and tie. And I was just, I really had no idea what I was doing. Like I, I, here I was, you know, 20 years old, shaved head, suit and tie. Like, I, I mean, really uh, like the epitome of clueless, like really good intentions, but no idea. And I think, I think what happened is uh, like I was a really good listener and I 
was not, I didn't have a cherished outcome in term, uh, meaning I was not obsessed with what I was doing was right. Like I realized that I was probably uh, wrong in a lot of areas and I had a lot of growth. And so when people started giving me feedback, I was a very good listener and I adapted really well. And there's this one you know, story in the book where I went to this client meeting at the Palm restaurant with a gentleman who was 50 and I was 20 and I was trying to sell him some ads. And I wore a suit and tie to, you know, like a, you know, a six o'clock, you know, drinks with just me and him. He said, you know, you want to grab a drink? I said, sure. I was hoping to sell him ads. And I sit down and I just like, you know, go right into my sales pitch at a suit and tie. And he's like, all right, fella, everybody slow down. <laughs> Elliot, slow down, slow down. First of all, take off your blazer. Okay. Take off my blazer. He goes, take off your tie. Okay. He's like, unbutton your top two buttons. I'm like, okay, roll up your shirt. You know, he says to the waiter, can you bring us uh, each a beer and an order of cheesy fries? And, and I'm, you know, again, I have uh, this vision that, you know, business meetings are very formal. You have a suit and tie. You're very serious. You know, you're doing business. And so we kind of sat there in silence um, until the beers arrived and then the cheesy fries. And he said, all right, listen, Elliot, everybody relax. Just be yourself. It sounds like you're doing some really interesting things. You know, sounds like you're a lot more than just an ad salesperson. Why don't you just tell me about yourself? And I had my sleeves rolled up and I'm, you know, I said, you know, I went to college. I actually dropped out of school to follow my dreams and build a business. And here I am, I'm selling ads, but you know, it's not because I'm a career ad salesperson. It's because my dream is to be an entrepreneur. And, you know, these sales really matter because every dollar we make, we're just investing it to build our dream. And we just really connected. And at the end of an hour, he said, okay, now tell me what you want to sell me. And I said, well, I want to sell you this for this much. And he said, well, how about, you know, for we do this, but a little less. And I said, how about this? And he said, great. And uh, he said, now we're going to shake hands. And and I, we shook hands and he said, that's how you do business, kid. That's <laughs> and, beautiful. Like, you know, for him, he probably forgot it. But for me, like that changed my whole life. I was like, wow. And, you know, this guy really respects and resonates with me because he sees the entrepreneur in me. Yeah. He sees, you know, really who I am. And I immediately got rid of all my suits and ties. I started dressing like how I felt was authentic to me. I started just telling people the truth. I used to not tell people how old I was or that I dropped out of school. They'd say, when'd you, you know, graduate from school? And I'd say, well, I finished in, you know, 2006 because I didn't want to tell them I dropped out. Right. And, you know, then I started saying, well, actually, I went to college for two years, but I left after two years to pursue my entrepreneurial dreams. And then suddenly... I went in people's eyes from this ad salesperson, this overdressed kind of clueless ad salesperson to this, you know, budding young entrepreneur who put all his chips on the table and risked everything to follow his dreams. And suddenly my meetings were 180 degrees different. Like even if someone didn't buy the ads, like everybody respected me. Yeah. Everyone thought like, you know, what, this guy is going for it. And uh, yeah, things really changed when I just started being uh, true in myself and just telling people exactly where I was. Well, even that aspect that you share of being coachable in essence, that you were open, that you knew that you had some lack, some weaknesses, and therefore you right. were open. My, honestly, my past is, is not that I, I knew enough to be fairly competent. And in that I was not that coachable. 
And I've got, uh, that's why I was a me- very mediocre pro cyclist. I was so uncoachable, good enough to get there, not good enough to listen and actually change. So again, that social calibration, I'm going to keep using that as, uh, I mean, cause we all want to know what, I mean, the most dangerous thing is we don't know what we don't know. And when we don't know that we're messing things up, I don't want to leave the story. So we'll come back, but I do want to hit something that I come to later on. Cause it's the same thing that happens in, as you guys in the fruition of your business. And I'm going to refer, gosh, I don't want to uh, confuse people, but in the book, it's your Aspen event that you're talking about. This is events later, your Aspen event, you come out, you go from a free offering to a paid offering and you just, you just screw it up. You, you guys royally screwed up, but you realize it's not the concept that's bad, but we really gave it bad packaging in essence. So let's come back to you now that you obviously either had faith or ignorance, and you can tell me which in continuing on this role of being an entrepreneur, even though as you started, the packaging was all right. So even if the concept was good, even if you had the capacity within you, the packaging was really bad, but you know that that is something that in, whether we're going after being an entrepreneur or going after being a, a, whatever, an astronaut, you know, whatever it may be, a a doctor, a, a yada, you name it, that we start off, we generally don't just knock it out of the park right away. And we often have that question of maybe this is not for me and being able to look, cause sometimes it's not, I mean, sometimes it's not, you've met somebody who wanted to be an entrepreneur and you finally just said, I, I mean, I'm putting this in, I have, and so dude, it is just not a good fit for you. And yet knowing that or knowing, okay, maybe it is, but you have it really packaged wrong or you are the wrong package currently. That's tough to discern. Yeah. So the concept of summit was a very good concept yeah. that, you know, on the back of the iPhone launch in, you know, 2006, suddenly there was a revolution in startups and basically anybody could build an app. And for the first time in history, just, I don't know if it was hundreds of new startups were starting a day, but just the amount of new startups and, and that were starting and the shift from when I was in college where everyone wanted to be an investment banker, that was considered the cool thing to do. You know, suddenly that got flipped on its head. No one wanted to go into investment banking and everyone wanted to be an entrepreneur. Everyone wanted to build their dream. And there's this new generation of entrepreneurs. Of course, the famous startups were, you know, Twitter and Airbnb and Uber and Facebook and YouTube. But there were thousands and tens of thousands. And this new generation of startups, you know, there were no events or community for these people. So that's the concept of Summit, just like a great music festival, you know, in any genre brings the music lovers of that genre together. Um, You know, Summit events brought together, you know, the subset of entrepreneurs building startups, but also there's a whole new wave of nonprofits that was starting. You know, it wasn't just, you know, when I grew up, it was these big old school nonprofits like the UNICEFs of the world. There were not the you know, new, small uh, nonprofits, uh, you know, like the Charity Waters. Right. And then it was just the new approach to everything, uh, the new consumer products that were launching. Like if, if we look at all the consumer products we use today, whether it's the food we eat, the beverages we drink, like almost all of these companies were started in the last 10 years, right? It, it's really mind-blowing. Like just yeah. look around at all the things that you're using, you know, you know, the candles made by a new candle company, right? right. Like, everything you know when etsy was built 
you know, not only is Etsy a startup, but that empowered, I don't know if it's millions of startups or hundreds of thousands. So there is a startup revolution happening after 2006. And Summit was the place to gather this next generation of startup founders. And the first event was 19 people. It was free. I charged it on credit cards. The next event was 60 people. It was free. Uh, We got some sponsors as well to cover the cost. And going into the third event, we really wanted to wow people. But I was still, as you pointed out, not socially calibrated. And so we tried to wow people in the wrong way by doing the event in Aspen, Colorado, which is a beautiful place, but it's a very old school elite place for, you know, wealthy, successful people who've already made it and their families. And I was trying, you know, we were trying to bring, you know, people in their 20s and 30s. And we booked the St. Regis Hotel thinking like, this is going to put Summit on the map. Yeah. You know, of course, what would have put us even more on the map was, you know, something that had the wow factor, which we would do later, but, you know, resonated more with people, whether it was an amazing, you know, outdoor trip like uh, Summit Outside we did in 2013. That was a camping trip for 800 people or events where we would encourage everyone to go skydiving or river rafting trips or, you know, events we've done in the jungle of Costa Rica. But of all the possibilities and all the wild things we could do, we thought, you know what, we're going to go to this kind of stiff corporate place, Aspen. Um, And on top of that, we just we didn't message the event properly. And this, the whole thing uh, was kind of a slowly unwinding disaster. You know, uh, it didn't make sense. The location, the way we communicated to people, we, we needed to charge for tickets and I didn't communicate that properly. So anyway, it was just, you know, for every, you know, one step forward, you sometimes take two or three steps back. Can I give, can I give quick context if I got it right? I mean, you, you had done the first event and it was kind of goofy, but it kind of worked out. And yep. then you did the second event again. You you know you did it for free. It kind of worked out. Then you did the uh, the Washington event, I think. Yeah. Uh, again, kind of a neat, a pretty significant feather in your hat. Then you got this Aspen one, and boom! It was again. You went to paid. You really upset a lot of the people who had been involved. That this the very community you were trying to build. And I mean, you guys wrote in the book. It all you literally had, or at least some of you had the thought of maybe this is it. It's over. Uh, I mean, that's, that's just not what we want to see. If we have a little success, a little success, we expect it to continue down that pathway. And you guys took a dive bomb and questioned stopping or not. Yeah. Friends, I'm pretty candid about my lack of financial prowess. Money and numbers are fairly Greek to me, so I need a lot of guidance. One of my closest friends is a wildly successful wealth manager, and I'm working on some financial literacy and just continually seeking guidance. So I ask you to check out yahoofinance.com. Nobody knows it all on Yahoo Finance is an incredible resource for the rookies like me or the seasoned investors. You know, before my dad passed away recently, Dave Ramsey and his wife, Sharon, flew down to visit. We all got to spend a day together. And I was at yahoofinance.com just now. I saw multiple news flashes from Dave and other people that you respect. And they were hitting so many of the hottest areas in finance today. So it's a place to get a snapshot of all aspects of your financial interests. And if you have them, your portfolios. 
I hadn't realized Yahoo Finance is the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. So for your comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. One more time. YahooFinance.com. I live high up in the Rocky Mountains where the air is clean and fresh as possible, but then I step indoors and I'm breathing in untold amounts of toxins and allergens from paint and carpet and cleaning chemicals and pets and furniture and appliances and mold and so on. Studies show the indoor air is two to five times more polluted than the outdoor air anywhere you are. And in some places it's a hundred times worse than that. Well, the solution is to get an air purifier and air doctor is just the best out there. It filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants and allergens such as pollen and pet dander and dust mites and mold and even bacteria and viruses so your lungs don't have to try to do that. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Go to airdoctorpro.com. You can use the promo code KEVIN, and depending on the model, you'll receive up to 39% off or up to 300 bucks exclusive to podcast customers, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. So to get the special deal, go to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com. Use promo code Kevin. Thankfully, the days of building a business website, then having this massive endeavor to integrate an online store are gone. Today, Shopify has fixed all that. I had one business where we actually built the entire website on Shopify's platform. So whether you're just starting out or you're selling a million bucks of product already, Shopify is just the industry leader. It works the same for physical products or online and digital. And Shopify is just hands down the best out there. Most importantly, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. It's 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Getting people to buy is not that hard, at least to the buying point, but getting them to actually give their payment info is, and Shopify is king in that department. They also have top tier customer service, which I think is critical. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Kevin. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Kevin to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash Kevin. Yeah, exactly. And and look, I think most companies iterate, whether it's their product or their pricing model, whether it's, uh, you know, Netflix or Spotify increasing pricing or coming out with different plans. It's just inevitable, right? That like most businesses, you know, Amazon Prime raising prices, like things change. And the key is communication. You know, why are the customers paying more? How is this also better for the customers? And I think we we came to that inflection moment where, you know, we needed to sell tickets uh, because we wanted to grow the size of the events because they're actually, like we talked about at the beginning, the concept of Summit was very good. You know, we were at the forefront of this kind of startup revolution and a lot of people, thousands of entrepreneurs wanted to come to Summit events. So we wanted to grow the community. And in order to grow the community, we couldn't just do free events and cover the cost of 30 or 50 people with sponsors. And so we had to sell tickets. But herein lies the problem 
that our messaging was absolutely terrible. Um, we didn't explain to people. We didn't call people. And so suddenly people who'd gotten one thing, you know, felt uh, retraded and completely let down. And explain real quick, just for context for people who don't know of Summit, what it is. I mean, it's not just a paid event. You go there and it's uh, like, I'm, get, I'm getting ready next week. I'm going to, I, I don't go to a lot of things, but this is podcast movement, one of the biggest podcasting events. And I'm going to meet up with my ad agencies and some you know specific people. They're all going to be there. So it's a good time for face-to-face. You pay, I don't know, it's four or 500 bucks or so and go for a handful of days. There's lots of events. That is not what you guys are doing. So give a good, just give a, a comparison to, it's not that, it's this. Yeah, Summit is more music festival meets wellness event meets, uh, you know, Ted talks. Yeah. Okay. So it's, you know, it's, it's half men, half women. It's extremely, uh, socioeconomically diverse. Uh, the attendees are from, you know, all around are all around the globe. The programming traditionally goes 24 hours a day. So, you know, we'll have talks at 1am about death. Um, we'll have late night pop-up food sessions. We'll have people, you know, waking up early to, you know, do morning wellness events while other people are still, you know, at night listening to, you know, their favorite music, you know, deep into the morning. Um, we'll have huge keynotes. Uh, you know, we've had everyone from, you know, Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos to, you know, Martha Stewart, Sh- Shonda Rhimes, et cetera. Like we've had, you know, a thousand plus speakers over the years. And uh, it's just, it's a surreal, you know, high energy gathering uh, very open group, uh, like you can go up and kind of talk to anyone. And so, yeah, it really resonated and people were very attracted to it from the beginning. And I think the key was just, you know, how do you evolve something? Again, we, we've moved Summit to lots of different locations over the years. Um, you know, we've changed how we do content, how we do programming, but it's all about you know, communication. Well, speak to that because, so I went through, this has been six, seven years ago. I went through a handful of years of putting on events. I put on 12 events. I'd rent out camps up here in the mountains of Colorado and do those. And I had every moment filled actually got called out then by a great lady at some point. She says, Kevin, you got us up here in these pristine Rocky mountains and you give us no time to go experience them. And I could also put on there and to experience each other because you wrote about that in the book. I mean, your first event, you had really no specific agenda set out and I'm over here and I think where most people are thinking I've got an event, man, I have to fill every minute with something of value and you talk, and I don't know how many chapters in about leaving room for spontaneity and randomness. So even as you just talked about some of the things that you have, how much time is left or intended for spontaneity, randomness? And I would also say just social connection with the people you're there with. Yeah. When you put on an event, I mean, the most important thing by far is the location and the setting, mm-hmm. right? You could have the best content and the best people, but if you're in a really uninspiring, uh, subterranean, unmeaning underground, uh, conference room with no windows, everyone's going to lose their mind. So for summit. And you're speaking to the hotel conference room that so many people book out and have, there's no windows. It's the blank walls and that's where we do it. Yeah. So the first thing with any event is you want to have an inspiring location. And as the events get bigger, that gets more and more difficult, but 
you know, certainly when it's under a few hundred people, there's lots of options of how to do it and where to do it in an inspiring place. You can get a really cool all-inclusive hotel and, you know, Maya Riviera, Mexico, which is where we've done an event or, you know, in Tulum or, you know, in Nosara, Costa Rica, or, you know, our upcoming event is in Palm Springs, right? Uh, like at La Quinta Resort, right? La Quinta is a one-level resort with all these bungalows. It's all outdoors. So I think the first thing is you really need an inspiring location. The second thing is you really need to put effort into the people who attend. And there has to be some element of either letting people self-select into the event or um, really just putting some effort into who comes. And so I think the the best way to do an event when I say self-select is by putting together specific programming. Certain people will want to not go. And you have a successful event, you don't want everyone to come, right? You want the people to, it would be like if uh, you ever went to uh, a yoga class or let's say a workout and they had just marketed the yoga class or workout to every possible person. And so where there's people in the workout uh, at the CrossFit or the Barry's boot camp who's just like, we're totally uninterested in fitness or in the yoga class, someone who just didn't like yoga. Like it would kind of ruin the vibe for everyone, right? right? Like one bad apple can spoil the bunch. So the key is like you really want the people that attend the event, like everyone to be on the same wavelength. And so how could you do that? You could have material in the invitation that says, you know, Summit is an event all about connecting with other people. And, you know, don't snub the startups and don't fanboy the big timers. So no matter who it is, you know, we expect everyone to engage with everyone else. Well, someone who's kind of standoffish or feels above other people is not going to want to come to that event. Or you might say, you know, we're going to be assigning seating for some of the meals and you'll be meeting random people. Well, only open people will attend that event. So in terms of the types of people, it's much more about openness and people who want to listen and want to meet people than it is about successful people who might be standoffish. And even what you just said a minute ago, talking about, Hey, it's, you know, tw- almost 24 hour programming. There may be us talk at one o'clock about death right there. You just lost a bunch of people and I'll, I'll pick on them. Cause I come from this group, you know, the conservative uh, type folks who listen and go, that's not, that's not my cup of tea. They want to go to the place where there's going to be somebody in a blazer and a tie and it's a more formal thing. And you're saying that this is not that. So is it easier in that sense? We tend to think about being, inclusive is there's much value in putting some things out there that you know are going to self-select exclude and kind of be exclusive saying if this is well you want you want to create exclusivity not by putting up a fence or a wall and saying who can come or who cannot come you want something to feel exclusive by letting people self-select into something like let's say i put together um I don't know. I just saw a new book by Colin O'Brady called The 12 Hour Walk. And he, and was, like, he was on the show about two weeks ago. Okay. Let's just say the people yeah. who choose to go on a 12 hour walk, that's an exclusive group. Yeah. Not because they get let in or voted in or some elitist system. It's exclusive because any person who wants to do a 12 hour walk is a very committed person. Yeah. Right. So now you have this exclusive group who've self selected into this kind of personal journey. And they might be from every background, any political affiliation, like it doesn't matter. It's a group that is committed to kind of growth. And so I think going back to events, which are interesting because anyone can put on an event. So whether it's a dinner at your house for eight people or something for your startup for 50 people, 
the location, the people you're bringing and really making the event feel purposeful and letting people self-select in and not trying to get as many people as possible. By the way, it might be a little harder, Kevin, for the first event, if not as many people self-select in, but if everyone has a great time, the virality will go up, meaning all those 50 people that came are going to refer the event to more people the next time. And then the final thing, you know, is about programming and finding a balance of not over-programming. Like you really want events to feel spacious. You know, when you put something on and people pay, you feel like I have to give them everything. But if you've gone to, say, your favorite restaurant, they don't just, you know, over-ingredient the food. Like a great piece of pizza or a great pasta or a great piece of fish or salad, there's a simplicity to it. They don't just like throw the kitchen sink at it or your favorite drink. Um, Or in terms of, you know, the amount of things on the menu, they don't just give you a menu with 200 items and you're like paging through losing your mind. There's like, here's the 14 items you can order, the 18 items. So there's a simplicity, a curation you want to create where less is more. And then there's a spaciousness. Like when the event ends, there's a, we would sometimes do like 45 minutes between content sessions So if a session goes really well, it can go over for 15 or 30 minutes. Or if a session ends and it's the right time to end, people can actually connect with folks in the room. And uh, often the best thing that comes at an event isn't what you heard, but it's in that content session, the people you met who also chose to go to that session. And now you have a lot in common because you're both in the, you know, podcasting host session. And so, oh, wow, you just met eight different people in that session. And that's your takeaway. When you look at events like this, and I know that you guys, you know, again, you start, this is right in the beginning of your book, even to that third event of Washington. So you do your own event, you do your own event, and then right away you get this opportunity, see, you know, somewhat right away opportunity. They're saying, gosh, you guys do this, Sh- do it for us, show us how to do that. So in that, you know, looking at those who are looking at a first event, I, I want to hit that because there's a lot of people listening. We've got a lot of people in this demographic who are interested in doing events. They, they really are attracted to that and they're wondering how to do that. But of course we look at it and go, okay, how can I do this event and really make a good profit as well? Now you went back and you lost money on your first event and ended up putting it on credit cards and you didn't have an intent to make a profit. Kind of uh, reconcile that now with if somebody's doing that first event, you just talked about how powerful the virality of that is. Would you even espouse, they may do that first event Maybe don't make a lot of money. Maybe don't make any, maybe even lose some, give people a great experience. They'll talk about, so you can use that for your next events. Where do you fall there? My recommendation, anytime someone is doing a first event is to do it in a city as cheaply as possible for as small a group as possible. So if you're thinking, for example, I want to do a hundred people at this beautiful nature retreat, I may suggest to do 30 people at kind of a magical spot in a city where you don't need to provide them housing, where you don't, where it's very easy to program the dinners, where where you just don't need to spend a lot of money. But the thing is, an event is like a product. It's like the first iPhone or the first any product that you've used, right? The first version of Spotify, the first version of a Tesla car, right? Like your first event is a beta. It's a test. And a lot of things you thought would work are not going to work. And the challenge with an event is that it's all happening real time, right? And you can't fix it once the events start. You got to wait like six more months to do the next event or a year. 
And so on like a website where you can just like tweak and change some code or an app and like update it over the next few days or the next week and suddenly everyone else gets it right, there's a lot to mess up on the first event. And so by starting small, not spending a lot of money, you know, skip the perfunctory stuff, the extemporaneous things, right? Like the the glitter on the outside. Um, Like, let's just say, you know, do an event in LA for 30 people in a front, you know, find someone's backyard and, you know, just, you know, get tables, chairs, you can, you know, do a fun outdoor barbecue, put some uplighting at night, and really make sure you have the content and the programming and the types of people right, really bring the early group, those first 30 people together. And again, to take an example, you know, Uber spent two years in New York and San Francisco before they launched another market. And then I forget if they launched 10 or 20 cities the next year, but it was basically like your, your typical hockey stick. It was like two years for two cities. And then it was like 10 cities, a hundred cities, 300 cities, something crazy like that. And, um, I would really focus on that first event to like really nail the, the, you know, find who's going to be in charge of your production you know, find who's going to, what the kind of food vibe is you want to go for. You know, don't, don't do what so many startups do, which is, you know, raise a million dollars, go off for a year, you know, don't show anyone your product and do like this big announcement and launch it. And it turns out it's not what people wanted. Right. You know, let the first event breathe, show it to people, let them critique bring them in, have content sessions on what do they want to see at your future events and then rocket ship from there. Yeah. You just depicted now I'm older than you and I'm old enough. I don't know if you, you go back this far, but where you go, you start the business or you're getting ready to start the business. You go and you make all the letterhead and the business cards. And a year later when it didn't work out, you're using those for the you know neighborhood <laughs> campfire. Uh, and thinking, why did I spend a thousand dollars on letterhead on this thing that we had to change the logo the next day anyways, uh, or it didn't work. Yeah, like let's let's just say that, you know, we were, you know, passionate about getting all the podcast hosts together. Like you go to an event like that and let's just say I wanted to start that event. Rather than doing this big splash and raising all this money, the best thing might be, Kevin, let's get 20 people together in a city, really simple. They pay for their own hotel rooms. I've got a friend's backyard or a friend's house we can host it in. You know, here's how we can engage everyone. Like, let's just get the first one done. Let's do it in a month. So, you know, do the first one quickly. No, like we have a term, uh, low cost, high, cool. So make it cool as cool as possible for as little money as possible. You know, instead of kind of the opposite would be like, all right, Kevin, for our first podcasting event, let's try to get 300 podcasters. I'm booking out the one hotel in Miami. Um, you know, it's going to cost 700 grand to do the event. I'm going to go pitch all these, but like, wow, that is a lot to lose. Right. I'm going to get all these sponsors. You know, like our first event, I lost like, I think it was 7,000 bucks or something. And the whole budget was like 30 grand. And I got about 20 grand of sponsors, right? So, you know, keep it small, keep it thoughtful, build out the team. Um, that will that That is the way to start an event. And know that once you get your team right, once you have the vision right, you really can have that, you know, hockey stick growth. So let's talk about two things, content versus experience. And then also, as you talked about attendees versus just presenters. So if we start off with, I mean, content, I, it seems like so many of the events are touting who that big keynote speaker or speakers are kind of like the Oprah thing. You know, if Oprah says your book's cool, everybody's going to buy it. Now, 
I don't know this for sure, but there's got to be some book where Oprah was really sad and had too much to drink. And she, you know, then promoted this book and it really stunk. And a lot of people bought it at first, but they didn't continue to do that. It's got to happen with events too, because we can go and you know that better than I do. I mean, you can go spend enough money and get a big keynote speaker that then everybody comes to hear and the event falls flat because of the experience. Can you fail on the other side as well, where you do a lot of experience, but not have a lot of good content? Or which way would you error? Yeah, so having an event that has a model based on paying keynote speakers is a is a tough path okay. because it's kind of like having a sports team that rather than put in the work to ha- you know to build out your single, double, and triple A baseball or to build out your rookie NBA rosters and build them the right way, instead spends money on players. Like it's a very expensive. It's a very expensive way to go, and it relies a lot on chance that you can actually book people. Because even expensive speakers these days, you can't necessarily book them. And a lot of the best speakers, there is no price. You you know, a lot of these people have made so much money, there is no price that they'll come speak for. And so I think building an event model that focuses more on the experience, um, focuses more on up-and-coming speakers who you don't have to pay, you know, or you can give them free flights and hotel, um, you know, focuses more on the people coming and connecting with each other. Uh, you know, big speakers do help, of course, but it's just that risk versus reward. Like, you know, to get a big speaker now, these speakers can be 30,000, 50,000, 100,000. And again, there are speakers who are two, three, 400,000 if you're trying to get big, big names. Right. You know, you could take that $100,000 budget that might get you two $50,000 speakers and, you know, you can spend it on a more surreal location and venue, right? That Because that's something in your control. Um, and that's, by the way, a better experience. If you think about it, Kevin, are you going to have a better experience for 35 minutes watching a famous person or going to this super awesome venue uh, with really cool local chefs and yeah. really cool nightlife, you know, with great music and, you know, where you, that hundred thousand, like that hundred thousand dollars can go a really long way and allocating it to a 35 minute talk is, can be problematic. And I think you just, there is something to be said for big speakers. Uh, but you have to be cautious that that's like, that's like they put all your eggs in one basket and suddenly you took your whole budget and you put it on speakers, get yourself in some trouble. Okay. Well then the other aspect that you, your, and you know, summit exemplifies is that I don't think many people think of at all is attendees, not verse presenters, but attendees and presenters. We look generally at the presenters and you put so much focus. I mean, your first event was only about the attendees. There wasn't a speaker. There wasn't a, some premise. It was just, Hey, we're going to get these cool people together. So, Hey, these guys, you got your initial couple guys and your third and your fourth guys. And you told the next person, Hey, so-and-so is coming. And they just wanted to go hang with them. Again, that is so, that is so not the norm. And even as you have done that, I don't see that proliferating a lot. I don't see a lot of offerings for events that are talking about the attendees that you're going to be hanging out with and that are going to be at the the party or are going to be hanging out in between sessions. That seems, is that as rare still as I feel like it is, even though you guys have succeeded greatly with it? 
I mean, look, I just think it's kind of a sad state to go to an event filled with people and then nobody has interest in meeting the other people. Yeah. Like, I, you know, I think, look, I think a lot of the events I see do do it right. You know, there's the food expo, which is about meeting all the other people in the food industry. You know, an event like Burning Man is all about actually people building the event. That's what's so cool is they actually... You know, I think the reason from an event standpoint, Burning Man's so impressive, they actually empower the attendees to create the event. You know, Coachella, of course, they have famous musicians, but really it's the scene at Coachella and all the interesting music lovers that are there. And I think trying to celebrate the people who are going, you know, again, going back, let's say we're doing a, a podcasting event, you know, empowering each of the attendees to get on stage for two minutes and share their biggest secret to podcasting. And now you have 20 people each doing two minutes, each sharing their secret to podcasting. Or, you know, we do uh, speed networking sessions where, you know, you can basically meet a new person every two minutes. And, you know, you can actually go around in an hour, meet, you know, you know, 20 plus people. So, you know, again, there is a value uh, like at an event where everyone wants to listen to a person on a stage. Of course, who doesn't want to hear Jeff Bezos or some well-known person speak? But uh, empowering the attendees to lead sessions, empowering the attendees to meet each other, it just that, that's what people really take from events. Like when you look back 10 years, Kevin, to events, you've been, the thing you probably took with you is like, oh, I met these people at that event. So I think nothing will ever trump meeting people at an event there, there there will never be a content session in my view that will be more impactful than new best friends or lifelong relationships you met at an event okay and i want people to hear that on a couple levels that i'll come to real quick because yeah as you're talking about that i'm going to this event now and i'm going and i literally you know have my schedule filled with people that i'm meeting specifically i don't know the tracks there so if i have extra time, I'll see you Hey, what's happening. And if I'm going to go attend a content session, I'm there for the people, but how much more would I be interested and would have paid if they said, if I got a note saying, Hey, Kevin, we, you know, cause they can go look at my rankings and my downloads and say, we've got a session that's uh, uh, 20 people or a or hundred people that are all right in your, they're your exact peers with downloads and whatever. They're right at the size you are. You guys can talk about where you're at and what you're going to do to grow and whatnot. And here's another session, man, what would I pay for here for people who are right where you are? And they tripled where they're at. And this is how they did it. I, I would pay so much for that uh, individual curation, but I've not experienced it again. I'm just going there and doing what I'm going to do. That would be, that would be tremendous. And you know, in that light of you talking about, yeah, in a sense, curating the group that's going to be there. I mean, people listening here right now, whether they don't want to do events or not, we talk so much about just like mastermind groups or just a group that you meet with every week to do life with or talk business with or, or, or whatnot too. And you pointing us into the, again, the spirit of the group of, of, of handpicking or curating, or again, making that self-selected, uh, inclusion or, or, you know, exclusivity is significant. That's something that we can do in our daily lives with friend groups on up to the events. Yes. Yeah. And look, I've gone to a mastermind where a few where they've broken the group either into small groups of six or eight, or if it's like a 20 or 30 person mastermind, everyone in a circle and literally asked every person, what is the one thing you need help with? Yeah. 
And then on the spot, try to get three to five people to be able to help you with that thing on the spot. I need help, you know, doing X, Y, Z. And then on the spot, someone's taking notes and saying, and someone's like, oh, I could help you with this. And I could help you with this. I mean, I've had a few of those that my mind was blown. Um, So that's like the kind of thing an event can do is to empower the attendees to help each other because it's frankly disempowering when the attendees are kind of viewed as like livestock, you know, just there to look up at the stage. And, And look, I'll just say the last thing on this is Events have a real uphill battle when every single speaker they can book, you can watch hundreds of their talks on the exact same topics online. Like, why do I need to see Elon Musk in person? I mean, I guess it would be, it would be a good energy in the room. It would be quote unquote cool, but every possible thing he's going to say, I can just watch it. And I probably already watched it, you know, so there is no speaker on a stage that you can't just watch everything they're going to say. Like, do I need to see Simon Sinek in person? Uh, I've seen every video he's done online. So again, I think if you are going to have speakers, it's important also that if Simon Sinek's coming, it's, uh, it's interactive in some way, or he gives a challenge to the group based on who they are. I think you know event hosts just really need to up their game because we're in this content revolution where uh, everything's been said. Like if I want to speak at an event, like what am I going to say that people can't just find online that I've said? So they need to say, Elliot, like, here's the exact topic we want you to tackle. Or Elliot, can you moderate, you know, this group, you know, and do a real live interactive session? I looked at your next event in Palm Springs and uh, saw that Mark Hyman's going to be there. The opportunity to ask him one question, a personal question is, is worth going. Uh, so I resonate. Yeah. For us, for the speakers, we do what I'm saying. I mean, we do, you know, talks in the round, you know, we're very, very, um, particular that if any, if basically with very few exceptions, anybody speaks, they have to stay for the entire event. Hmm. So now, you know, Mark Hyman's going, he's also there for three days. Like we don't really have people, you know, you know, jump in for an hour and leave. And, uh, you know, of course it does happen with certain people's schedule, but for the most part, like our intention is people stay. And then again, we're very focused on our actual programming. Like we will attach a talk to, you know, some form of breakout sessions. We'll like, we're, we're not just putting people on stages and then you're listening to someone lecture you. Like we'll do very interesting. If we have a talk, it'll often be on a timely topic and we'll be very thoughtful with the moderator and what they're asking and make sure it's not you know, something they've heard other places. But again, the bottom line is like, you can't just get lazy with your content and throw someone on stage. You need to be extremely creative or, you know, you're not going to deliver for the uh, attendees. Well, you obviously have, cause I went, I signed up as your website. I'm sitting there thinking, I hope that they pick me. And that's not the general spirit that I, you know, you have for most events. They're trying everything they can to woo you in to pay them. Cause they'll take anybody. Um, you, at the end of the story about the Aspen event, you talk about your mind shift as a group, as you go back now and audit what you did initially, how you presented it. And you said it wasn't for the attendees. Now it's going to, we are crafting it. It is for the attendees. It's for the community. And it reminded me of Donald Miller of, of story brand, you know, fame of talking about the customer is the hero. We got to craft this. This is not about us. 
And that's again, such a shift. It seems so elementary for me to say, and yet I have violated it so many times. And I go back and look at the offering, look at the website, look at the event and go, man, we were just touting us and I didn't make it about them. And it's such a big shift, but so counterintuitive to our initial promotions. And that's a big one that you guys came to. Yeah. Look, our ground rule for events is that every single piece of programming at the event and the entire experience, every bit of it should be something that we are really excited about. So presumably, if you're hosting an event, let's just say you're a window manufacturer and you're just obsessed with the quality of windows and glass, you know, or you're a coffee manufacturer and you're obsessed with coffee. Like presumably, if you're hosting an event, you're obsessed with the topic, right? So whether you're a window manufacturer or obsessed with coffee and you're doing an event for coffee purveyors or window manufacturers, like you should be obsessed with everything happening at the event. And we really all, we try to put ourselves in the attendee seat and we make sure, okay, what is the check-in process like? Would I be happy, you know, waiting in line, uh, you know, or what gifts would I want when I attend or you know, do I want to arrive a day early? And what do I want to do when I arrive a day early? Or what time would I want the programming to start in the morning? Do I want to start at 8 a.m.? Or do I want it to, you know, the first talk to be at 10 so I don't feel pressure? Um, you know, like a, a talk that starts too early in the morning can ruin the night before because you're having so much fun and you feel like you have to go to sleep. Yeah. Or we've had another problem in the past, Kevin, where we were trying to pack in content. So we'd start these talks at like 8.30, 10, 11.30 a.m. And our view was, that, well, if people go out late, they'll just skip the 8.30. What happened was the content was so good at 8.30 is that everyone went out till three or four in the morning and then woke up to go. And so the whole room was like zombies. <laughs> And so, you know, we're just thinking, okay, what do I want? Like, I, you know, if I go to bed, you know, earlier at 10, you know, 11, 12, one, wake up, have a leisurely breakfast. Like, I don't want to be forced to go to early content. Okay. What kind of, you know, what if all the fitness and wellness is during content? Well, then people have to pick between being healthy and going to content, you know, so make the event for yourself and every single item you ask yourself, is that something that I want to do or is that something I don't want to do? And hopefully the entire event is something where you, and this is why it's so fun to have co-founders, where you or your partners, like everybody's obsessed with the different parts of the event. Speak to it from the attendee standpoint. So whoever, you know, we're talking about it from a, Hey, if you want to put on an event, but on the other side, if you're an attendee looking at it, how would you have folks vet an event if it's going to fit them one and two, how to get the most out of an event. And I'm coming with a chip on my shoulder and that one from the, you know, I think we so often go after things, especially in the personal development and self-help aspect, even health and wellness and go, Oh, I hope that I hope this will work for me. And my thought is if that's your perspective, it's not, you're going to work for you or or not. Now, obviously there's got to be something there, but help us with the mindset of as an attendee. Yeah. One, again, vetting what event is right for you. And then two, how to even prepare yourself mentally to get the most out of it instead of sabotaging yourself by looking at it with a wrong perspective. I mean, in general, my mindset the last, say, 10 years is I try to do a few personal growth experiences a year. Okay, so that's like my mindset. Every year, 
I should do some personal growth experiences. That could be a 12-hour walk, like Colin O'Brady says in his book. Yeah. That could be uh, someone's, you know, 30-day no alcohol challenge. That could be, um, you know, uh, a personal fitness challenge for myself. Uh, you know, it could be going to an interesting and kind of inspiring new place with my family. Um, or, you know, I will try to go to a few events a year that I think, you know, speak to me. And I think it's important like that we don't, you know, that we're not kind of robotic and there's different times in our life that we need different things. Yeah, There may be a time in our life we need something that's, uh, you know, more quiet, more introspective, more soulful. And maybe that's for you. There may be something where you need like, uh, just a very inspiring Tony Robbins type thing. Uh, you know, there may be, uh, there, there may be something where you need like a real industry event. Um, so I think first and foremost, just like trying to step back at the beginning of the year and within your, your goals for the year, like trying to do a few things that are really for personal growth. And then I think when you get to the event, um, you know, we have a few guidelines, but, you know, you know, you know, try to go on a learning safari, try to have your phone off, try to really engage, you know, and know that, you know, the best thing to probably come out of the event is going to be the people that you meet. Well, and you're, again, going back to your personal story of the casino floor, you know, Elliot too, I have, and I'm, and I'm aware even with myself, and we were, we all like to talk about ourselves. We would love somebody to come up and go, oh, I know about you, or I'm interested in what you're doing. Tell me about that. And, and, and talk about that. And yet how often can we spend the whole time talking about ourselves in which case we learn absolutely nothing. Is that another I agree. Thing? Go tell us about I that. I agree. Okay. I mean, look, my, my life philosophy is to try to ask 80% questions. So it's only now that you're asking me questions I'm talking, but normally I just ask questions the whole time. And that is of course the best way to learn anything. And I actually, when I'll meet younger folks, and I'll mentor them. One of the very first challenges I'll give most people is to spend one week only asking questions. Hmm. And if people ask them a question, to attempt to ignore their question and to ask them a question back, which generally works. Yeah. So, look, I think uh, I think the going through life with the mindset of asking questions and going on a learning safari is a really, really good one. And you'll probably find that you make even better, deeper relationships by really caring about people and asking them questions. I mean, I, you're on the, on here because, you know, I, I read the book, um, interested in you guys and your story. And I would really encourage anyone who's just looking at starting something and having fear and concerns to read the book. Again, you guys, you make it so relatable with your stories because yeah, you guys just came together with nothing special in essence, and you made something special together and even out of yourselves. Now with the event though, which you guys didn't ask me to promote it. I don't know. I think your next one is in November and it's not like it's open yep. to the world and stuff, but give us a, a concept of, uh, of the event. You said it's in Palm Springs. How many people are going? How do you select who's going to go? Um, just for one, for people who may be interested in two, just again, as people look at creating their own unique event. Yeah. Look, our events are for the entrepreneur inside of us or the intrapreneur, meaning someone at a business who kind of thinks in an entrepreneurial quality, yeah. uh, entrepreneurial mindset. So the event is in Palm Springs. It's 800 people. We take over the La Quinta Resort, which is all one level. 
the event's very outdoor uh, based. It's very spacious. There's, you know, good vibes, music. It's not a super rah-rah event. Like it feels very low key. And, um, you know, the other thing we do is we have a business called Summit Junto, which is our version of the forum. So it's the same concept um, for the entrepreneur and all of us. And we build kind of like personal advisory boards for groups of seven people. Hmm. So those are the two main things we do from a business standpoint is people can, who want people want to engage with Summit community of entrepreneurs. They'll either come to the events and or they'll join Summit Junto uh, where we'll put together an advisory board for them of seven people kind of at their professional level. It's all virtual. Uh, so like 90 minutes online once a month and you can connect with, you know, and build a new peer group of other entrepreneurs. And we have a whole summit curriculum we've put together. Okay. And folks can find that again at summit.co, like I talked about in the intro. Well, you talk about values in the book, and that's my next question, which is perfect for our part two discussion. So we'll let people look forward to that a couple of days after that airs. Man, thank you for being here and uh, for your time and just, again, for the candor of your guys' story and the inspiration. I so appreciate it. Perfect. Loved it. Thank you, Kevin. Okay, friends. Again, you can get Elliot's book, Make No Small Plans Anywhere, and find Elliot and his pals at summit.co. And yes, I'm seriously looking at going to the November 2022 event in Palm Springs. I just recommended the book to a buddy of mine who ordered it right away, and he's looking at going to the event with me. Hey, thanks as always for choosing to tune into this self-helpful podcast. If you got value from the show, please subscribe so you don't miss any episodes and please leave us a rating and review, help others know what they can hope to glean from the show and really talk with somebody about something you learned here. Discuss it some more. I sincerely hope I've helped you help yourself. 